Hello and welcome to episode 249 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here in 2024 as always with... Senator Benowitz and it's been a busy three days of 2024 already. It, it's been a long year. Uh, yeah, it's been right. a long year. A long year comprised of two and a half days so far, let's say. Yeah, it's Wednesday, the 3rd of January, and... Jason and I had planned to start the year off slow. We were going to talk about some nice things that happened over the break. We were going to talk about some interesting technological developments that are being pursued. We were going to talk about orders and deliveries and things of that nature. Instead, we're devoting at least half the show probably to the Japan Airlines and Japan Coast Guard collision in Tokyo. Here's what we know so far. On the 2nd of January, at roughly 5.47 p.m. local time, a Japan Airlines A350 inbound from Sapporo was landing at Tokyo's Haneda Airport. There was a Japan Coast Guard, the Halavand-8300, on the runway. The A350 touched down briefly and then collided with the Dash 8, creating a massive fireball at the C5 intersection for runway 34 right. The aircraft, now with a collapsed nose gear, continued on fire for another 1,000 meters before coming to rest at the opposite end of the runway, slightly to the right of the runway in the grassy area. All 379 people on board were safely evacuated from the A350. Five of the six crew members aboard the Japan Coast Guard Dash 8 were unfortunately killed. One was seriously injured. We understand now that the crew member who was seriously injured was the captain of the flight, and he has been taken to hospital. Those are the quick facts. Jason, I mean, I think we start by saying it's incredible that every single person on board that A350 made it out without serious injury. It is. And we're going to talk a bit about what exactly happened in that evacuation of the A350, what led up to it, what was a result of it, some components of the firefighting efforts that were called into question that we think were probably fine. There's a lot to talk about here. Sure. This situation or an exact scenario like this, it's been waiting to happen. We have seen many, many close calls happen in the last few years that in some cases have been averted due to stupid luck, basically. Somebody said something, somebody did something, and crisis was averted at the very last second. And unfortunately, luck always runs out. And here, luck did run out. But fortunately, no passengers on the JAL aircraft or flight crew were really even seriously injured, which is an absolute saving grace to this sad story, because there unfortunately were four deaths. But thankfully, no passengers or no crew on board the JAL flight were injured. And we will talk a bit about why that might be. And a lot of that has to do with this being a brand new plane with brand new materials. And it's the first, actually, Ian, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but it is the first whole loss of an Airbus A350 and the first whole loss, at least, of a commercially built composite frame aircraft. So there is going to be a lot of studying 
of this incident for many years to come. Because I'm sure what we learn from this will influence not only the current aircraft being built, but the next generation of aircraft, whatever comes next. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's back up and talk about what we know so far and some of the things that are going to be front and center in this investigation. What we know based on the ADSB data, based on radio communications that were both available through our friends at liveatc.net, but also transcripts made available by the Japanese Ministry of Land, Infrastructure, Transport, and Tourism released today on the 3rd of January. We have a better understanding now of what the aircraft were supposed to be doing compared to what they did. I'll kind of start the conversation by saying we don't have position data for the Japan Coast Guard Dash 8 because that aircraft did not have an ADS-B transponder. Right. And that's not unique in Japan. A lot of aircraft in Japan, unfortunately, especially smaller domestic aircraft, don't have ADS-B or they don't have position data, unfortunately. And hopefully that changes. Yeah, that will certainly be part of the conversation that we have shortly. And one that I think is is worth having, especially amongst Japanese governmental agencies on whether or not this is something that might be required. But this Dash 8 did not have an ADS-B transponder. It did have a MODES transponder. So we were receiving data from the aircraft, but there were not enough Flight Radar 24 receivers in positions of reception to get the same signal at roughly the same time to be able to calculate the position of the aircraft. So we know that the aircraft was operational. We know which receivers it was seeing. So they were close to the airport. So we know roughly where it was, but we can't calculate the position. That said, the Japan Airlines A350, of course, did have an ADS-B transponder as nearly all modern commercial aircraft do these days, at least newly delivered ones. This aircraft was delivered in 2021. So that we have a tro- the standard amount of data for and also the granular data that we process specifically for this particular flight. So the aircraft was approaching Haneda Airport, runway 34 right, and the Japan Airlines flight was cleared to land, was told to continue its approach, and was cleared to land. At roughly the same time, about 15 seconds later, the tower controller that was talking to the Dash 8 let that Dash 8 know that they could taxi to the C5 holding position or the stop bars prior to the runway, where they would safely be away from the runway and could then take to the runway after the flight 516 came in. What we also know, based on the transcript that was put out today by the Japanese ministry, we know that the flight that was following Japan Airlines 516, Japan Airlines 166, was told to slow down by the tower controller because from what it sounds like, because they include the phrase, there is a departure plane, and this is translated from a mixture of English and Japanese, because they were the controllers were speaking to both domestic flights in Japan, using some Japanese, some English, as well as international flights, such as a Delta flight, purely in English. And so 
they told Japan Airlines 166 to slow down because there is a departure plane. We're taking this to mean that they were going to allow the Dash 8 to depart from the runway C5 intersection before Japan Airlines 166 could land. Right. So we know that Haneda at the time was using runway 34 right in what's known as mixed mode, basically with both arrivals and departures at the same time. And I guess we can read a part of the transcript because there's not really much to sure. what's what's actually relevant here. This would be Tokyo Tower saying JAL 516 runway 34 right cleared to land wind 310 at 8. JAL 516 confirmed that cleared to land runway 34 right JAL 516. So everything normal there. And as you said, Ian, this was actually 10 seconds later, the Japan Coast Guard aircraft Juliet Alpha 722 Alpha called the tower. They, they said tower Juliet Alpha 722 Alpha. See, I'm not sure if that's a transcription They were on the Charlie there. taxiway. Ah, they were, they were on, they were Charlie. on the okay. Charlie taxiway. On, oh, that probably says Charlie, or maybe it says C. I don't know. But then they go on to say Tokyo Tower. They call the Japan Coast Guard aircraft and say, Tokyo Tower, good evening, number one, taxi to holding point C5. And the Coast Guard aircraft replies, taxi to holding point C5, Juliet Alpha, 722 Alpha, number one, Thank you. So it is important to know that not only did air traffic control tell the crew of the Coast Guard flight to hold short, but they actually did acknowledge that and read back that instruction. So this doesn't seem to have been any sort of air traffic control or communication issue. And it's nice to see the Japanese authorities put this transcript out, translated into English so quickly, because there were rumors and transcriptions of very, admittedly, very staticky ground audio from Haneda. So this is one aspect of this incident that is pretty definitive. It was not at least a communication issue with air traffic control. Yeah. And I'm certain that investigators will take a deep, deep, deep look at whether this was an understanding issue. Was this a understood the instructions, missed the actions? And there's some discussion to be had about the notams that were available to pilots at that time. One of the things that is of interest, and I'm sure investigators will look at this as well, is that the stop bar lights for the taxiway entry into runway 34 right were out of service at that time. Yeah, that on its own is not something spectacular or anything like that. Airports all over the world, if it's even installed, most airports don't even have this. If it's installed, they don't seem to have the greatest level of reliability, unfortunately. Yeah. And the one thing that there are multiple videos of the accident, and one of them was an extended clip, and I timed the video. And it was depending on you know when I tapped my watch and, and kind of played with the minimum time and the, the maximum time, between 20 and 23 seconds from when you see the Dash 8 take to the runway and the lights shift so that you can see the lights of the front of the aircraft. You can see the taxi lights and the runway lights of the aircraft. There's about 20 to 23 seconds between when those lights shift towards the camera, meaning that the aircraft is facing down the runway, and when the collision occurs. So one of the questions that I have in my mind is there was a good chunk of time there where that aircraft was sitting on the runway when it shouldn't have been sitting on the runway and nobody said anything. Yeah. The pilot didn't say, hey, we're on the runway. Sorry about that. And the controllers didn't say, hey, you're on the runway. Get off the runway. 
Yeah. I mean, 20 seconds isn't an outrageous amount of time to be lining up and waiting. If, if there's traffic crossing down the runway, it's not that unusual. But yeah, as for the go around, it should be noted, at least if you haven't looked at some of the diagrams or some of the photos that the investigators put out so far, the Japanese Coast Guard Dash 8 was not at the threshold of the runway. It wasn't at the very beginning of the runway. It was at this intersection or holding point with C5, which is an intersection of the runway. So it was quite a bit down the runway, not really where you would typically, I guess, see a commercial aircraft at least holding and waiting to depart. At least that's my take on it. You can tell me if I'm totally out. I mean, two things here. One, looking at the ADSB data from other aircraft at the time, they were all at Charlie 1, which is beyond the displaced threshold. So the blog post that we have up includes all of the ADSB data that we have, the MODES data from the Dash 8, the runway diagrams, and the transcription. So if you're wanting to follow along with all this, I should have said this you know, a few minutes ago, if you're wanting to follow along with this discussion, check out our blog post. We're adding new data as it becomes available, and anything that seems relevant will continue to add. But the Charlie 1 entrance is at a display special. So there's the area of the runway where it's not suitable for landing, it's well before the touchdown point, but it's where aircraft begin their takeoff roll from that taxiway entry point. If the Dash 8 had been there, this would have been a serious incident in which an A350 overflew a right. Dash 8. Much like the Austin incident. Exactly. At a 100 or fewer feet, but it would have overflown the aircraft. Yeah. And then there's a lot of human factors issues that are going to come into play here. There are two I want to call out specifically. One is that at least in the US, air traffic controllers have to explicitly state to hold short of the runway. So what we did not see, and this this may very well just be how Japanese air traffic control works, is that they just said, hold at hold point C5. They did not say hold short runway 34 right at hold point Charlie 5. So there is the potential that the Japanese authorities are going to have to amend their policy to make it much clearer that you need to hold short of the runway at this holding point. So that is one interesting thing that I'm sure they'll they'll take a look at with the air traffic control, really the communication back and forth with the pilots. But the second is that this comes just a day after a major earthquake impacted Japan out in the area around north of, of Kanazawa. So I'm sure the crew of this aircraft was probably working very hard. They had a lot on their mind. They were possibly fatigued. It's one of those things where, of course, as we always talk about this industry, there's not just one thing that happens. It's always a series of events. And had that earthquake not happened the day prior, this incident likely possibly would not have happened. But we have to think about what was on the crew's mind at that time. What were they going through? What were they trying to accomplish? And it's just a series of events that unfortunately led to this. Yeah. To Jason's point, we should note that the Dash 8 was carrying relief supplies from Tokyo to an airport in the affected area. And so this was a relief flight. The aircraft was was full of supplies for that effort. So that's the reason the aircraft was there to begin with. Right. The other thing that I want to talk about kind of at this end of the runway, before we get to kind of what happens after the impact, is there's been a lot of conjecture and a lot of conversation about why didn't the A350 go around? And Jason, you touched on the unexpected 
place where the dash eight would be. And remember, there's no mention of this dash eight to the A350 pilots. One, because it's not supposed to be there. But two, because the Dash 8 pilots are speaking to another controller on another frequency in the same tower. So the tower controllers are coordinating the departures and the arrivals amongst themselves, but the pilots themselves are speaking to the two separate controllers on discrete frequencies. Yeah. And that's an interesting point. And if the Dash 8 was supposed to have taken off, the controller talking to Jal probably would have said something like one departure prior to your arrival. And we did not hear that. So they would not no, have been be, Because at all aware. that information was relayed to the following Japan Airlines flight, 166, right. because yep. they were told to slow to the minimum approach speed so that the Dash 8 could depart after yep. 516 landed. The other thing is that And I have a photo that slightly conveys this, but it's blurry because I took it on a bouncing A330. But seeing an aircraft at night on a runway is incredibly difficult. I don't think we mentioned that until right now. This occurred past sundown. This was night operations. And like you just said, it is very difficult to discern what blinky light is what blinky light that far down the runway. It is very difficult to determine what you're actually looking at, especially when this other aircraft is a quarter or a third down the runway. I would kind of be surprised if they ever did see the Dash 8. I mean, the photo I have is a 747 that's a thousand feet down the runway. I knew it was there because I watched it begin its takeoff roll before we crossed the runway behind it. I could not see the aircraft if I didn't know it was there. Yeah. And it's a difficult thing. And this goes back to, I know we talked about the incident at Austin, but we do have the technology to avoid or assist pilots in situations like this with night vision and all that sort of stuff and synthetic vision. And I believe this is still really just a very high-end private jet and also very old FedEx and UPS aircraft where their their heads-up display (laughs) for the pilots, they have what is essentially night vision and they have much better visibility to what might be on the runway. And it's it's maybe it's time to have this discussion again. And should this be something that commercial pilots have as standard? The technology exists. We know it works. We know it can save lives. So why aren't we using it? Yeah. There is that conversation that I think is certainly worthwhile, though there's also the other side of things is that you know we might be leapfrogging that with even better you know kind of synthetic vision. So I mean, is it worth retrofitting? you know what what is the benefit to retrofitting on an existing technology versus you know developing something even better? Oh, we'll see what the the a three sixty will have installed. There you go. We have to shift to the evacuation because we've spent 21 minutes on this and most of the discussion, at least that's been brought up to me, is the evacuation. Ian, what happened? Well, it's what didn't happen, at least right away, that has come under scrutiny so far. And I would like to stand in front of the crew because everyone made it out safely. And so- there's no perfect evacuation. I mean, I think even in some of the you know training exercises, people have gotten injured during an evacuation, even when they know what's about to happen. 
Well, yeah. In a lot of cases, majority of them, the only injuries you might have during an evacuation come from the evacuation itself. Those evacuation slides itself, right. are no joke. Going down those slides, especially when you have hundreds of people at once, they're no joke. Injuries do occur, broken bones, sprains, from the mere act of evacuating the aircraft. So one of the things is that from the time of the incident to the time that the last person exited the aircraft was about 18 minutes. Yeah. 18 minutes in that situation is an absolute eternity. But we'll get into why that it might be absolutely fine that it took 18 minutes. But yeah, 18 minutes is like, that's that's a quarter of the flight. Let's be clear. Once the evacuation order was given, once they popped the slides and started sending people out, that did not take 18 minutes. What took 18 minutes was the aircraft stopped, the aircraft was assessed. The crew is trying to figure out what's going on. Fire crews are reaching the aircraft. They're keeping people on board. There's fire outside, but there's not fire inside. Some of the doors are unavailable, whether that's because there's giant pools of burning jet fuel outside of them, or perhaps the doors don't work. We don't know. They actually evacuated the entire aircraft using only three doors, the two front doors and the left rear door. Yes, and that left rear door slide was propped up to the absolute maximum it, it's able to be used. Remember, the nose gear had collapsed. The nose gear collapsed, so the, the aircraft was nose down, tail up, and the angle of that slide was ridiculous. I don't know if I would have opted to use it myself personally. I Maybe, maybe I would have waited and, and gone to one of the front exits, but that's not going to happen in reality. If you're at that door, you're going down that slide. You're going out. But you're getting it, shoved out by the flight you're, attendant. You're getting shoved out. And it looked like, I mean, <laughs> from the pictures I saw, it looked like it was, I don't know, at a 60, 70 degree angle. It was extreme. So if there were injuries, it almost certainly came from that slide. But it was doing exactly what it was supposed to. Everything on the aircraft, for the most part, did exactly what it was supposed to do. There were a few technical issues, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But once the order was given, or once the evacuation really started, it was probably within the mandated maximum of 90 seconds. Yeah. I mean, and so the questions have arisen about why wait so long. And there was also an interesting discussion about why didn't the firefighters put the fire out? And I think that's two parts of the same question. Because what we saw initially was a large presence of airport rescue firefighting vehicles at the scene, but putting foam down around the fire. And I think this is one of those things where it seems counterintuitive. Why aren't you putting the fire out? Just put the fire out. Well, you don't want people evacuating an aircraft that's on fire into large pools of jet fuel. Right. So they were basically giving them an escape path that they knew almost certainly wouldn't suddenly burst into flames. And that's that's an interesting way to go about doing it. And I'm sure the investigators will look into the actions of the firefighting team. But in, in retrospect, it seems like a good good move, a good decision. Right. And so once you have that taken care of, and I'm going to kind of call back to QF32. I mean, they kept everybody on the aircraft for a long, long time after they had landed back in Singapore. I think it was like three hours. They couldn't shut one of the engines off, which actually has an 
interesting parallel to this incident. We'll talk about that. And so what you're dealing with is a crew deciding based on the available evidence, is it safer for the passengers to remain on the aircraft for the time being, or is it safer for them to exit the aircraft where there is a distinct possibility? We know from decades and decades of experience that if no one's injured yet, people will get injured evacuating the aircraft. It's not a question of if, it's it's a question of how many and how badly yes. will so they be injured. I, I believe we've talked about on this podcast in the past years that there have been times where pilots have called for the evacuation of an aircraft and then the airline goes back and analyzes the situation and says, you probably shouldn't have done that, you're fired. So there is definitely thought that goes into the evacuation command and it's not to be taken lightly. And in this exact situation, 18 minutes is an eternity, but there are some circumstances that led to it taking an extended amount of time. So the A350 smashed into the Dash 8 and it did the best it could. It held together. The fuselage didn't break up. The wings didn't break off. But there were system failures. Obviously, the electrical systems, the electrical power on the aircraft is generated by the engines. That was suddenly no longer available. But pictures and video from inside the aircraft show that the emergency pathway lighting came on, very bright, all LED lighting now. And the areas around the exit doors were also extremely bright. So that's good. Passengers knew where they had to go. Unfortunately, a lot of reports that we've read from either JAL or from, I believe this was in Wall Street Journal as well, said that a lot of onboard systems, because of the damage sustained to the aircraft, did not work. Crucially, the public address system and the intercom onboard the aircraft. So in determining in the flight deck, do they need to evacuate the aircraft, it is suddenly much more difficult if the pilots can't ring back to the flight attendants in the back of the aircraft and say, hey, what's the situation back there? How bad is it? What's going on? They would have to go into the cabin, determine that from themselves, and issue that command. And at the same time, the flight attendants giving instructions to the passengers wouldn't have the benefit of the PA system. They had to shout and use the bullhorns that are on board the aircraft for this exact reason. You've probably noticed them before, maybe you haven't, but every aircraft, they have emergency bullhorns on board. And, and here you go, an actual use of it. An actual use of the bullhorns. And and this is the callback again to QF32, where the same situation happens, where the cabin interphone was not working and the cabin crew could not communicate with the flight crew. Yeah. And even more eerily, it looked like, we're not quite sure, but it looks like the right-hand engine of the JAL A350 may not have been completely shut down or the links to control it or put out the fire. Do something with that engine may not have completely taken effect because there, there were certainly sparks and all sorts of fun things shooting out of the back of that aircraft, though it didn't look like the fan blades were spinning or anything like that. But there's definitely an interesting link to an aircraft that is critically damaged that doesn't lose control of its engine, but isn't able to completely, promptly, completely shut it down when needed. Right, right. I guess the last thing to talk about of the information that we have, I guess, so far, as far as the sequence of events is everybody makes it out from the A350. But I think one of the things worth mentioning and worth keeping in mind is that there was also an extremely large firefighting presence at the opposite end of the runway for the Dash 8. 
Yeah, it's probably not too common that an airport has to fight two completely engulfed in flame aircraft at the same time on the same runway. So they were almost certainly stretched thin, but this is what they train for. Every time you see at an airport random smoke and fire trucks doing things, that is the fire crews training for scenarios just like this. And they sure were put to the test. And I think they came out quite well at the other end of it since there were no no significant injuries at all on the job. A350, which is really, if you've seen the pictures, and we didn't talk about this, and we probably should, the aircraft burned down. There is virtually nothing left of the JAL A350, or the Dash 8 for that matter. But the commercial aircraft here, the JAL A350, you could see a wing. You can see detached from virtually anything where the flight deck was, because there's some non-composite structural material there. And then basically, there's nothing left. So there is going to be a lot of research into how the composite airframe of this A350 reacted to the fire. But apparently, it did very well because they were on board that that aircraft for 18 minutes before evacuation, and the fire did not manage to break through that fuselage and get inside the aircraft. So it is, at least at first, unscientifically, a very positive result for the first whole loss of an A350 because it was extremely survivable. So there's a good article in Aviation Week that came out today, yeah, Wednesday, today, that I'll link to in the show notes because it was really instructive about basically a confirmation of all of the testing that went into the survivability to fire of carbon fiber composites. Because the idea is that these carbon fiber composites are able to withstand fire longer. However, once the fire consumes them, it's going to burn. Yeah. And that that lines up exactly with what we saw because it it withheld. It's burning down, basically. It restrained the fire as it's supposed to for quite a long time. But once it caught fire, this isn't hyperbole. There is nothing left really identifiable in the fuselage of this aircraft. And it is not what you likely would have seen from an aluminum-built aircraft. Or maybe there's more. I mean, like that's it's not recognizable. But I mean, pound for pound, I'm wondering, you know, how much looking at kind of previous examples of fuselages that have. I also want to point out there's the fact that the fire department made a conscious decision to say, everyone's out of the aircraft safely. There aren't structures around, there aren't other aircraft. We're not in area where the fire can really spread. Let's contain it and then let it kind of burn itself up. Because really, once these things get going in such a manner that it did, I mean, Anybody who's seen the video can kind of see that for themselves. At some point, you just have to let the thing kind of burn itself out and then tamp it down from there. Yeah, that aircraft was a goner. There was no coming back for it, which is just kind of interesting when you we look at the videos and the pictures from the passengers who had gotten off the aircraft and they're now standing in the grass yeah. taking pictures and video of the aircraft. It is a recognizable aircraft. There is a fuselage, there are wings, there are engines. But by the time all is said and done, it is unrecognizable, just smoldering rubble. But either way, that aircraft was not going to be repaired. It was not going to be fixed. This isn't the Delta 767 we're talking about here. It was a goner. So why not just let nature take its course and let it go? Because they're not fixing that thing. So the Japan Transportation Safety Board is investigating as the lead agency. The French BEA is assisting as the investigative agency for the state of design and manufacture. Airbus has sent a team of technical experts to provide assistance any way they can. 
And I'm sure that there will be more agencies involved by the time this is all over. It's an ICAO Annex 13 investigation, which means that we should see a preliminary report within 30 days. And if we can hope, within a year, we'll have a final report. I am going to be fascinated by what is found on the flight data recorders and the cockpit voice recorders. I believe they have found at least one flight data recorder from the Dash 8. I'm not sure whether it's the cockpit voice recorder or the flight data recorder. And I haven't heard anything about the A350 yet, though I assume we will find out soon. And hopefully they've all survived what was an incredibly intense fire in both aircraft. Yeah, I'd be very impressed if they're able to salvage anything from the A350, though I don't expect to learn all that much from the A350's recorders. Thankfully, they found at least one from the aircraft where it probably does matter. Hopefully, it was the voice recorder. But when they do eventually put out their preliminary and final reports out in Japan, Ian, I look forward to the authorities faxing you a copy because this, this is Japan Absolutely. and it's the only way we're going to get a copy. So dust off your fax machine and let's talk about something else. All right. <laughs> we segue with, with one fatal accident into another where we do have the final report. Nepalese investigators released their final report into the Yeti Airlines ATR crash that happened early last year. That final report, there's not much new from beyond the preliminary report. The investigators finalized their preliminary conclusions in which they believe that the instructor captain, who is the pilot not flying, likely misidentified the propeller condition lever and moved those to the feather position instead of moving the flaps lever from flaps 15 to flaps 30. Flaps 15 had previously been selected as the aircraft was approaching the new airport at Pokhara, and instead of extending the flaps further for the approach, the propellers were moved into the feathered position. The flight crew at no time recognized that the propellers had been feathered. They did recognize that there was no power coming from the engines, but they did not recognize that they had feathered the propellers, and so they just ran out of power. They eventually did extend the flaps to flaps 30, but by then it was pretty much too late. That's not much new as far as the preliminary report is concerned. What the final report adds to the cause of the accident was the fact that there was no published approach procedure for this new airport. The airport had only been open for two weeks and there was no official published approach procedures. Yeti had devised their own internal approach procedures. And what the investigators did is they used those approach procedures to conduct approaches and realized that those procedures did not develop a stable approach. And so they lay cause at the fact that it was two stressed pilots approaching a brand new airport without stable approach procedures. One captain is being trained by the other, and they have an intense workload landing at this new airport, avoiding high terrain, avoiding the old still operating airport. And then on top of all that, they pull the wrong handle and feather the propellers instead of extending the flaps. And they just couldn't recover from that combination of events. So not just one thing, as we always talk about, not just one thing that led to this, but certainly some learning that's going to come out of this accident as well. Yep. Always more than one thing. And there was 
certainly a lot going on. Way too many things. Way too many things. And I don't believe we had known this before the final report. And that's that's why we we read them. And that's why they write them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. This next story is bizarre, I guess is the only way to describe it. And still details are still coming to light. But Salt Lake City police are conducting a death investigation because a man broke through a secure barrier at the Salt Lake City airport and made his way into the engine cowling of a Delta Airlines A220. And Jason, you've been following this story a bit more closely than I have. Yeah. The Salt Lake City Police Department has, has thankfully put out more information to the public because initially it was even more bizarre than that because it went on to say somebody got onto a de-icing pad, was found inside the intake cowling of an aircraft, resuscitation was unsuccessful, and he died. Oh, and also the engine wasn't on, which obviously raised all sorts of eyebrows and had as someone in the cowling of an aircraft engine die even though the engine wasn't on. None of that really made any sense. And in response, Salt Lake City PD put out some more information, a very nice timeline that says this was a ticketed passenger. He was supposed to be there. He was in the terminal, went through a secure door onto the ramp, ended up somehow losing his personal items, including including clothes and shoes on one of the airport's runways, and made his way over to a de-icing pad where he found a, a Delta Airbus A220, which I don't know, it was probably there being de-iced, no big deal. But they did clarify to say, oh, the the state of the aircraft's engines is now unknown. They were spinning, but they don't believe they were on, which is interesting because the A220 is a geared turbofan. So I don't believe those engines windmill like older aircraft engines do. But if they were moving, they must have been on in, in some capacity. But this is a very, very odd situation. We don't really know what happened here, but they said they life-saving efforts, including CPR and the administration of an anti-overdose drug was done, but none of that worked and the man died on scene. It was just, this is a very, very strange thing to see. Um, obviously, the, the flight was canceled. The aircraft went back to the gate. But just the more we hear out of the story, the, the weirder and stranger it gets. I don't believe I've ever heard one quite this strange. No, I mean, and we've had naked folks on the runway before. We've had people who are experiencing acute mental issues on the runway before. This is a weird combination of all of them. Plus, we don't know if... So it wasn't the engine that killed him. Something happened. Don't really know what. <laughs> but now they've reiterated that they don't know whether the engine was on. Or like, Very strange. So keeping an eye on this one for sure. Okay. We still have a bunch of stuff to cover, so we're going to do it quickly. It's going to be a long start. episode, and you're just going to have to deal with it. I think this is, it's a fine way to start the year. And I think yeah. this is a really important episode, and I think, I hope it's been a bit enlightening. All of the rest of this so we've been saving up for a few weeks, and we can't just yes. not talk yes. about it. So let's go. So we have a fresh multi-operator memorandum from Boeing regarding the 737 MAX. Ah, the old one step forward, one step <laughs> back thing. Yeah. Yes. Boeing is telling operators of the newer build 737 MAX, so, so apparently there's a cutoff for this, but I don't know exactly what it is, to inspect specific tie rods that affect rudder control movement for possible loose hardware. 
a non-US operator found a missing nut discovered on a rudder tie rod. Boeing inspected all of the built but yet not yet delivered 737 MAX and found a loose bolt. So that bolt was tightened and then Boeing sent out a mom to all the 737 MAX operators saying, hey, check your nuts and make sure they're as tight as they are supposed to be. But nothing further. So no one's reported that their nuts are loose so far. On the good news front for Boeing, on December 22nd, after a nearly four-year hiatus, Boeing delivered its first 787 to a Chinese airline, a direct delivery. So over the course of a few years, there have been some lessor placements with Chinese airlines. But this is the first built by Boeing, delivered from Boeing headquarters to the Chinese airline directly, 787 delivery. This one went to Junyao Airlines. Hey, that's great news. So that equals out one piece of bad news, one piece of good news. So Boeing is exactly where we found them last week. And here's a piece of good-ish news, but we're not quite there yet. So there were a number of reports, both in Chinese media and US aviation press, that China was going to clear the 737 MAX for deliveries once again. We thought that was going to happen towards the end of the year. The likely candidate for the first aircraft to go home to China would be a China Southern Airlines 737 MAX 8, registration B20CA. That has not yet happened. I believe our good friend John Ostra reported that while the China Civil Aviation Authority has given its go-ahead for 737 MAX deliveries, we are still awaiting the economic authority's approval of the importation of the aircraft, which has not yet been granted. That is the final step before they can actually bring those aircraft to China. So close. Almost there, maybe. We'll we'll see. Jason, I can't remember if we talked about the New York Times report about the FAA's controller fatigue that was published by the New York Times. I can't remember if we talked about it in the podcast. I don't think we did, no. So we talked about it a lot on Twitter because the FAA spent a good deal of time refuting- Oh, we did. We did talk about this. Episode 245, we mentioned it. Okay. So well before the break. So we we talked about this where, where the FAA spent a good deal of time refuting the New York Times articles, not even conclusions, just- just the, the concept the article of it itself. Saying, yeah. Oh, air travel's never been safer. There hasn't been an incident, uh, a crash since X number of, of years. And, and anyone paying attention knows that, well, yeah, it's not really, not really by, you know, by design. It's kind of by luck at this point. Well, Ian, what's going on now? Well, after doing all of that for show, I guess, the FAA has now appointed a committee on controller fatigue. To try and solve the problem of controller fatigue that they said doesn't exist on a systemic level. Okay. Good that they're doing that. Good that they're admitting there's an issue. I I don't know what this committee's impact will have. Ask any controller if there's fatigue and the answer will be, yeah, only since like 1982. So, you know, there's that. That's a good committee finding. I will note that the FAA did celebrate reaching its hiring goal for 2023. Even though the report that was issued by the Independent Safety Review Committee 
that we discussed a few episodes ago said, even if they hire all those controllers, we're still going to end up with just 200 more controllers by 2032. Hey, maybe the committee here will will find that in some of the conclusions. Yes. Who knew that six-day work weeks and forced overtime would be fatiguing on on a Uh, small, limited set of very important, high-stress individuals? Yes. Hmm. Not that we haven't talked about how stressful being a controller is ever. No, 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 it's never come up. Let's move on to Mexico, where the will they, won't they Mexicana saga is a they will, kind of. Mexicana started operations as scheduled, flying from Mexico City to Tulum, but they didn't land there. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit foggy there at the new airport a on bit. the coast. And after some holding, they didn't even attempt to land. There was a an aircraft ahead of them. I think it was Viva Airbus that tried twice from once from either direction and said, "Nah, we're out of here." And we're unfortunately, good. the festivities for the first day of New Mexicana version 2.0 was uh, quite dampened because of that. But they eventually repositioned, got back, and just was running five hours late for the rest of the day because they only have one airplane. So if it doesn't make it in, you're, you're, you're not getting out. So good luck to them. We'll keep on that one. Jason, this is an interesting article that you flagged, mostly because it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, it's a problem with no solution. Good luck. Yeah. It goes all the way back to 2019. Do you remember 2019? Like that? that that's no. so long I ago. Honestly, I don't. But this comes to us from Flight Global. The title of the article is Low Fuel Iceland Air 757 Incident Exposed Flaws and Airports Diversion Readiness. And basically what happened here was an Iceland Air 757 was coming into Reykjavik from all the way from Seattle, which is one of their longest flights. And unfortunately, ahead of the Iceland Air flight, I believe a private aircraft or a BAE 125 jet had a runway excursion and that ended up closing the runway, the only open runway at KEF since the cross runway was not being plowed, not being maintained from the snow at that hour of the day. That would be runway 1028. It hadn't been maintained over the night and was basically shut down. You can't land on a runway that's that contaminated. Unfortunately, the Iceland Air aircraft had to hold at 6,000 feet for quite a while south of the airport and they, they were running low on fuel. But they had nowhere else to go because of some miscommunication, lack of available other runway or airports, including the downtown Reykjavik airport, which is much smaller but can facilitate the landing of a 757. But there was some miscommunication about breaking action reports. There were some taken, but the approach controllers were not made aware of it. So they couldn't provide an estimate on when that aircraft could land. So they said, you know what? We got nowhere else to go. So we're going to land at Reykjavik anyway on the closed runway, which is kind of a a desperate move of last resort, which thankfully, in this case, the runway excursion happened all the way at the end of the runway, and it didn't actually impact it, but their emergency services were tied up in that moment. So had this Iceland Air 75 had any sort of issue, it would have been quite a problem, but it did expose a weakness in Iceland's readiness to deal with a situation like this where you you don't have a ton of airports in the area. And if both of your Reykjavik airports are unavailable, what do you do? And yeah, it it just kind of, it did end here and really there's no answer. So 
hopefully they, they tightened up some procedures, communication lines have been improved, but yeah, kind of disappointing that the report doesn't really say what the improvement should be or what, what they did actually improve, but the Iceland Air crew did what they had to do. Yeah. The thing was, is that the, the controller said, well, you can land if you declare an emergency. And they were like, all right, we're declaring an emergency. And they're like, okay, you can land on the runway, no problem. That's what we'll do. And, and that's, and that's hey, what they did. I did read that they were nice about it. So when they approached after landing and approaching the end of the runway, they turned their lights off as to not blind everyone who was working at the end of the Oh, well, that's with good. The, uh, with the jet that was the wayward jet. So yay, that's something. One more thing they did f- find out after the fact that the braking conditions at the other airport, after the fact, learned that, oh, they couldn't have landed there. Anyway, so it ended up not mattering. They probably would have had to do this anyway. Okay. Moving on. Speaking of landing, you're not supposed to land on a frozen river, is my understanding, unless you're flying a plane that is designed to land on the frozen river. Yeah, there is not- Am I wrong? No, you're correct. It's it's right there. Okay. The word that I put in the show notes, and there's not much to go on here, but an Antonov AN24 operated by, who operated this thing? Polar Airlines? Oh, man, that's almost too good, isn't it? I've never heard of them, but apparently Polar <laughs> Airlines, way out in, in rural Russia, landed parallel to the runway they meant to land on, which is on the waterfront, and landed that on- counts a, for something, right? counts for something. They landed parallel to the runway on a very icy river. Thankfully, there were no injuries because it's Russia in the middle of the winter, so the river was probably <laughs> very occupied with some thick ice, and there were no casualties, there were no injuries. I don't know if the aircraft has managed to take off again, but judging from some of the pictures, it's like- I mean, it's flat, it's white, it's by some trees. It looks like it could be a runway, perhaps, maybe. Sure. Maybe. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> there are more egregious incidents, but thankfully the, the ice held and there were no issues. I don't know, however, the state of the aircraft. It turns out we, we, we can't track that one right now. It's very, very rural. Russia. I mean, and what, I don't what, what was this? I, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but it was somewhere very rural. Link in the show notes. You can pronounce it yourself. Okay. Jason, you flagged this story and I have thoughts. Okay. Let me go back to this show. Oh, oh, this is a good one. So I just put in the show notes, poo-powered planes, question mark. Because it was, you know, the the week between Christmas and- we're not talking about Winnie. No, Chris, it was the week between Christmas and New Year, so I needed needed to find some news. But this comes to us from the BBC, and the headline is, Firm develops jet fuel made entirely from human poo. Uh, so that's interesting. The chemist at a lab in Gloucestershire, probably got that right, the CEO of Firefly Green Fuels, James Highgate, demonstrated that, hey, we created this sustainable aviation fuel, an alternative fuel, probably not sustainable, get to that in a minute, but it is virtually chemically indistinguishable from carbon-based fuel. It has a 90% lower carbon footprint than standard fuel, which is pretty crazy. Unfortunately, the amount of human poo you would need to power any aircraft for any legitimate flight is, uh, it's not going to be a large scale solution. So they go, went on to say that a uh, typical London to New York flight would require the annual sewage of 10,000 people to get there. So it, it, it's uh, probably not going to cut it. 
what you're saying is we're going to need super poo. We're going to need a lot of to power these aircraft. And they estimate that the UK's total sewage supply for the entire year would meet about 5% of the country's aviation fuel demand. And and the UK doesn't have the the highest fuel demand in the world, and it would only cover 5%. So while it's great that they have seemingly developed a a zero-waste, zero virtually emission-free jet fuel, this one does not look like it will make it into the mainstream, unfortunately. Unless there's some untapped source of human poo that we just don't <laughs> know of, which is, I don't think, the case. Okay, moving right along. Latam has ordered five 787s. Their total is now going up to 45. These five are notable because they will be powered by GE and X engines. That's different. That is different. Lufthansa Group has ordered, you ready for this? I'm ready. Up to 100 737 MAX aircraft. Whoa. This would normally be a headlining topic for us, but now it's a couple weeks old, so it only gets a footnote. But it is 40 firm, 60 options for the 737 MAX 8. We don't know where... Lufthansa will actually end up placing these aircraft. Lufthansa is notoriously opaque about that, so we don't really know. But it is notably the first 737 order for Lufthansa in decades, I believe, decades and decades. So the last 7.3 they had wasn't even, was it an NG? I think it was a 400. So it's been a, a very long time. And on top of that, they're not done. This was the the end of year, spend your budget or lose it situation. They also ordered 40 firm 20 options of the A22300 for City Airlines and 40 options for the A320 for whomever in the Lufthansa group might need one. Excellent. I like it. And we're not done. There are more orders. Not done yet. But wait, there's more. Squeaking in before the end of the year, EasyJet says we need more. And honestly, this would normally be another headlining order, but it came in in that nice, nice spot at the end of the year where no one's paying attention for 157 more Airbus. I just have written here 56 A320neo and 101 A320neo. Sorry. Put the details before I stopped reading there. So 56 A320neo, 101 A320neo, because 100 and even 100 is just not enough. And they also converted 35 A320neo orders to A321neo. So easy, Jeff. Maybe they got free shipping. If they go 101. Well, it's a deal. You know, end of year blowout sale, order 100 321 Neos, get one free. Get one. There you go. Yeah. And we will end the show with news I did not expect to begin the year with. It's great news. To be be fair, I didn't expect most of this news. But this news I really didn't expect because Skipple is not cutting slots for the summer. They're adding them. Oh. What? Airlines love this sort of uncertainty about can they fly to a specific destination, but this seems quite opposite of the last few weeks. And hey, I'm flying to Amsterdam in a few days. So this is this is good news. I'll make sure to thank them for, for not making really weird decisions. But who knows? Check back two weeks later. It might be the opposite. There you go. Yeah. So what we know so far is that Skipple is going up to 293,000 slots for the summer season rather than the slated 280. So they were trying to bring things down to 460,000 flights for the year. And instead, there will be more than those. All right. So someone at the, in the boardroom at Skipple had to say, like, are, are we still in the airport? Do we, do we do that? And someone said, yeah, we, we are. We should have right. flights. It's good. 
This this comes after the European Commission and the U.S. Department of Transportation suggested that the unilateral slot removals by Schiphol violated a number of international and European-wide agreements, uh, including Open Skies agreements that the U.S. is party to, and that there might be repercussions if you go through with the slot cuts. Not long after that, Schiphol said, no, we're, we're not doing anything. And then this week they said, hey, you know what? We'll add slots. Why not? All right. Well, if nothing else, we're on the, the right path for Schiphol. I guess. But we are on notice now. We are on notice that this is what they want to do. Sure. All right. That's what we know to start the year. It's the 3rd of January. By the 10th of January, when we record next week, who knows what will have happened and what we'll know by then. This has been episode 249 of AvTalk and the first of 2024. I want to... First, thank everyone who wrote in over the break, suggesting stories and ideas to talk about on the podcast over the next year. Some of those were absolutely fantastic, and we'll be getting back to you on those. Some were a little interesting, and some of you just wrote your name in an email, and I'm not sure why, but thank you for that. Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe they want us to talk about them. Maybe that's... um, Hey, if if you are an interesting person and you do something interesting for work... Hey, let us know. Let us know. Uh, Just include more than your email, please. Exactly. And then to close the show, Jason and I want to say job well done and and best wishes for a long and happy retirement to our good friend Lou who retired as an air traffic controller at the Chicago Center so dealing with aircraft mid-flight he's been there for the better part of two decades and has been an air traffic controller between working at the FAA as well as working in the US military for the better part of three decades so his last shift closed out 2023. He is now officially retired, but he is not leaving entirely. He will be training some of the new controllers that will be guiding aircraft through the skies over the US. So please join us in wishing Lou a wonderful and happy retirement. And we hope to have him on the podcast in the near future. So Lou, congratulations. Enjoy your retirement and come talk to us soon. Yes, they should put him on the committee. Come to think of it. That's a great idea. This has been episode 249 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening. 